Good evening. We're thankful you're here tonight. If you have your Bibles, you can be opening up to the book of First Kings. First Kings, and we will begin there in just a moment. The, we're thankful certainly that you're with us tonight. Any visitors that may be in our midst, uh, we're thankful tonight to have some of the Farr family with us. Um, they are uh, helping and participating with us this year in our Bible Bowl program, so we try to make sure and let them know as we begin practicing on Sunday night. So thankful that they are able to be with us, although Amber did let me know that uh, their dad is preaching on Luke as well for them on Sunday night, so uh, they've been working through that. And I just share that with you as we've asked you to continue to encourage our kids, and you've done a good job with that as we think about that. My plan is still, as thinking about next year, to maybe do that around the month of February, to take a month and, and break it down into several different lessons, and uh, for us as a congregation to encourage them by doing the same thing, kind of working our way through the book. So we appreciate them being here and the opportunity our kids have to continue to study. Uh, even the book of Luke. And so tonight uh, we're going to continue with our book of the month study, as we have called it, uh, book of the month club, if you will. And we've been working our way through uh, the Old Testament. And so we are up going in order as we have so far, uh, simply to the manner that it is in your Bible, uh, not trying to go in any type of chronological order or anything like that. But we have come forward now to uh, the book of First Kings. So to touch on a few things tonight that would hopefully encourage us, um, I, I try to remind you as best I can the way that I feel about it, which is simply when we look backward, uh, uh, backwards a lot of times at the things that we read on the pages of the Old Testament, if we're not careful, then we certainly see a mirror oftentimes in the way that today, uh, that the world works today, and even the way that we sometimes, as God's people, maybe not as the chosen nation of Israel that we call them, but even today as God's people, we can still act in very similar manners if we're not careful. So it's encouraging to us, certainly. Um, and then hopefully even for you, as you think about maybe stories, and, and we talk about using that word carefully, that they're not, of course, fables, but, but real events, but these stories of people and things that we've heard of, Maybe you recall even from a young age, a child learning these types of um, accounts of some of these people to remind ourselves of this, their significance in the grand scheme of things uh, is important to us. When we come to 1 Kings, I would remind you simply as we talked about First uh, and Second Samuel, and as we will talk, God willing, in a month or two about First and Second Chronicles, it's simply broken down into two parts because it was too large for one scroll, uh, for one person to carry, for one person to unfurl there and read together. Uh, and so eventually it was broken up into two books, but it was at one time one book or the book of kings or the book of the kings so tonight to begin let's break it down and there's many different ways you can do this but to in tonight we're going to look at three three sort of large scale breakdowns of the book the first one is the reign of solomon chapters 1 through 11 what i'd like for us to do is touch on a few things through there so if you've got your books and you're turning to that section we'll touch on a few different things um when it comes to 1 Kings 1 through 11, we simply learn a lot about Solomon. If you think about the timeline of the nation of Israel, we have just left David or in the process of leaving David. David has served 40 years up to Solomon. Now we're going to learn about Solomon's 40 years before we come to the end of that. In 1 Kings chapter 3, a passage, some of this that you will be familiar with if maybe you're following along, uh, we have God saying basically, and ask me anything, ask me what you want. And Solomon, of course, asked for wisdom. 
there in chapter 3. Uh, and so instead, God gives him the wisdom, but not only that, but the riches and the honor, God says on down later in chapter 3, about verse number 13, uh, thereabout, as God answers Solomon, he says, I'll give you the wisdom, but I'll also give you the riches and honor that you did not ask for because you did not ask for those things. As well, in chapter 3, uh, we read about Solomon's wise judgment. This was a bit of an inside joke between me and one of my coworkers at the steel place because uh, our boss one time referenced this in the meeting. You know, he said, it's kind of like that Solomon guy, you know, in the baby thing. He didn't know much else, but he knew about that story. And it was always kind of humorous to us. But it is in chapter 3 there that we read about the two women and the baby that Solomon, of course, says to, uh, to cut in half and, and his wisdom in that judgment there. If you move forward through the book of 1 Kings through, the rest of the first few chapters, uh, it's a lot about the temple. It's kind of like Exodus last year with our young people in the Bible Bowl. There's a lot of things there that aren't really as interesting to us when it comes to the temple, the way that it was constructed, the different parts of it, and that type, uh, type of thing, until you come to chapters 10 and 11. In chapter 10, you may recall that he, uh, Solomon gets a visit from the Queen of Sheba, um, and then as we come to chapter 11, we essentially read very quickly of the demise of Solomon. We're going to come back to this in a few moments as we make some applications, so I don't want to spend too much time on it here. But certainly, um, we see here in verse number 4 of First Kings chapter 11, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, so or as was the heart of his father David. And so begins a, a pretty important section of scripture here. Because as we come uh, and begin chapter 12, the originally when I preached this lesson at Lake Hills and going through the same kind of book of the month study, uh, I had two basic breakdowns. But I thought for our purposes tonight to encourage ourselves, it might help to go a little bit further and to break it into three. And so we're going to call the second section, the kingdom divided. If you're used to, excuse me, and familiar with um, the nation of Israel and their history, we think of it primarily in two large groups, the united kingdom and the divided kingdom. Well, before we can get to the divided kingdom, it has to be divided up, if you will. And so in chapter 11, in verses 11 through 13, as Solomon's heart has been turned away from the Lord, the Lord speaks to him and tells him, Solomon, the kingdom is going to be rent away or torn away from you because essentially you have turned from me. Because you have done these things, you have turned your back on me, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. But... And there's a big but here because there's a big promise. And for our young people who are just in our Bible Bowl practice, I promised them this was coming in the lesson. Uh, but when we talk about the line of Jesus and what we got to today in our Bible Bowl practice was, uh, I think, Luke chapter 3 at the very end where there was a genealogy. And so when me and my children studied that at home, I skipped over it because I don't want to read all those names. What we do in our Bible Bowl practice is we, have a, a, we listen to an audio version. And so that guy, he got to read every single one of those names. And if you've ever tried to look at a genealogy, it's always a little interesting. Well, I ask our kids, what's the purpose of that? Why is there a genealogy in Matthew? Why is there a genealogy in Luke? And they were on the right track with the idea that we are tracing ourselves back, or specifically those people, the Jews, and then those folks were tracing themselves back through David and through those folks that are listed in that genealogy. And so it's very important, and this connects to 1 Kings chapter 11, because God says, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you, Solomon, because what you have done. But... 
The big but here and the big difference is because of the fact that there is a line to preserve, then you're not going to lose all of it. Notice there in verses 12 and 13, he says, I will, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David. So God essentially says here, it goes backward to the promise I made to Solomon, to the promise I made to David, and even going all the way back to the promise I made to Abraham concerning the Messiah, that a portion would go to or would stay here with Solomon and so that that bloodline can continue to flow of course all the way down to the birth of the Messiah and the coming of Jesus. We read here in chapters 12 through 14 of the kingdom being divided because of what Solomon has done. You may recall in chapter 12 there's a very uh, important story where Rehoboam who is Solomon's son is trying to make a judgment himself and so he listens first to who? The elders, we might call them the older folks, and they give him advice, but he says, I don't know that I like that. I'm going to go talk to those younger folks. And as is sometimes the case, young people don't always give the best advice. The young people give him the bad advice, but that is who he listens to. And he is sort of uh, hateful, if you will. He's sort of uh, evil, in a sense, back to the nation of Israel. And so here begins this division. And in chapter 12, Jeroboam is going to lead the northern kingdom. And in a great and terrible way here, he begins by setting up two golden calves. Beginning in verse number 25 of chapter 12, we see there that he is going to, to build these two calves. Verse 29, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And so they have places they should go besides the place that God has told them to go. Well, we're going to do what we want to do, and we're going to set up these two golden calves, and we begin to see a lot of the terrible things that will then happen to the divided kingdom. So, but first of all, the kingdom is divided, and so this is the rest of the book then. I kind of coined it this way on purpose, but is the divided kingdom. Beginning in chapter 15, and we're not going to spend um, time looking through this in detail tonight, but get, beginning in chapter 15, we see the divided kingdom and all the different things that are going to take place there in that it has to be divided first it is and then we begin to follow along so i'd like to share with you here if it will read correctly uh the kings of the nation of israel and the kings of judah this is going to be very small for some of you to see and that's okay it's just sort of for uh, us to consider there this is from the ethical media group that the mcdade family puts out they have uh, a lot of powerpoint slides through basically the whole old testament it's very encouraging but this is the one they have when it comes to the kings and you see all of the kings of israel and all of the kings of judah so right here in first kings chapter 12 the kingdom is divided and this is what the future looks like it looks like a whole bunch of rulers who are going to do a whole lot of different things. One of the interesting points that preachers usually point out is the fact that all of the kings of Israel on the left-hand side were evil, were bad. On the, when you come to the right-hand side and the kings of Judah, there were some that were good, but there were many as well who did evil and who did bad. And we'll kind of come back to that. Ten tribes formed Israel, the northern kingdom. You see the list there of Reuben, Simeon, and on down. There were ten, ten tribes in the north, and then there were two tribes in the south. Judah, of course, the southern kingdom is called Judah, but Benjamin was a part of that as well. So a lot of information, but it kind of gives us an overview of what is going to take place here in 1 Kings. Just a couple of other things before we move on to some points for ourselves. What's the purpose of 1 Kings? Well... 
I would submit that it's not primarily a historical account. It's not only maybe a historical account, but it is also there to show a divine perspective on human history. We kind of get to see how God is going to interact and what God's perspective is on what the people are doing and how they're behaving in a sense. I don't know if that's the best way to say that, but how they're behaving, especially into what he has told them to do. When it comes to a theme, uh, we might say that the theme of the book of 1 Kings is God's great blessings or blessing to not only the faithful, but I didn't add it in the slide here, but maybe even in connection with that, the obedient. God's great blessing to the obedient and the faithful and the tragedy of disunity among God's people. You see, when we just, when we just talked a moment ago about 1 Kings 12 and Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the advice of the older folks and the younger folks, I mean, no one necessarily there at that time can see to the future the problems that this disunity is going to cause. As the people are going to split over this and they're going to have these trouble, um, then it's going to, to set a precedent. In fact, with Jeroboam's golden calves there in chapter 12, the reason that he does that is because he is worried that if the people go to Jerusalem, they're going to go over to the other kingdom. He's afraid of losing the people to the southern kingdom. So he says, well, I'll just set up worship in these other places. That may not have been what God said, but I don't want to lose my people. And so we begin to see the effects that disunity has among God's people. Who wrote the book? Well, as a lot of things that we see sometimes in the Old Testament, it is uncertain. When we take a look of what we know about it, not only that, but the fact that it was uh, maybe some of the style that it's written in, it's possible that it was Jeremiah or Ezra, a couple of names that we are familiar with. But at the same time, we can't know uh, for certain who wrote the book. A few key verses here. If you've got your Bibles, you want to turn to these and follow along for just a moment. 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 happened right before the death of King David. When we think about the great man that David was, even in his bad times, uh, he was very important. And so when we come to chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, he draws his son Solomon to him. And in verse 2 he says, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, He said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. We said just a moment ago that probably the theme of the book is that that God blesses those who are obedient and faithful. That is a theme and maybe one of the main themes of the word of God. Even when you go forward to the New Testament and the way that a person becomes obedient changes somewhat under the new covenant with the idea of baptism is still being obedient. God still says, when you are obedient, I will bless you. We make it so hard sometimes in our life, and the world makes it very difficult, but it boils down to something pretty simple. If you will obey, if you will follow my commands, I will bless you. It doesn't equal the riches and maybe the monetary way that we wish sometimes, but he will bless us. David gives these instructions as they they had been given to him probably for his whole life. He passes them on down to Solomon and says... Go, or excuse me, be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. 
walk in the ways of God. The second passage we'll take a look at for just a moment, 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. When God appears to Solomon a second time, we continue to see this thought put forth as we will not only in 1 Kings, but as we, God willing, talk about 2 Kings soon and the books of Chronicles. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and, excuse me, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fall, fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. It's almost just pushed forward time after time, this theme that we've already discussed. And then 1 Kings 18 and verse number 21, one of my favorite passages when it comes to the book of 1 Kings, and really for a lot of folks in the entire Bible almost, because there is a connection to the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Jesus says, let's boil it all down. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, not to discredit the Son of God. He is, of course, part of uh, the Godhead there. But Elijah sort of said it first in a sense there. In 1 Kings 18, 21, on Mount Carmel, as he is about to have that great victory, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Depending on the version you're looking at, you may see that question worded a few different ways. How long will you falter between two opinions? Uh, and, and a few different ways that it's worded. But I, I picture this, as we oftentimes do in our own mind, with Elijah, the way that a parent talks to a child. It's almost when a child is saying two different things that don't make sense together, we get very frustrated with them. And you can only imagine Elijah shaking his fist and shrugging his shoulders at the children of Israel. How long are you going to try to have it two ways? How long are you going to try to ride the fence? You can't do it. You have to choose. Choose God or choose Baal. Jesus says you have to choose either God or mammon. You cannot serve both. And that is the theme even up into the book of Revelation when Jesus talks about spewing you out of his mouth because I don't want lukewarm. I don't like that. I'd rather you be hot or cold. Why would Elijah say follow Baal? Well, he doesn't want you to. God doesn't want you to. But he wants you to choose. And on that mountain there, as Elijah wins that great victory and all the things that take place in that scene there, it begins in verse 21 there with the question. And the people, notice in verse 21 at the end, answer him not a word. They're not willing to say anything. They don't want to sort of sink themselves, if you will. And oftentimes we fall into the same boat. Well, if I just plead the fifth, as we say, if I just remain quiet, it'll be all right. No, God says you got to choose one or the other. It can't be both, and it can't be neither. A few practical lessons for us tonight. I have one, and then the other two, I think, are in your outline in the bulletin if you've got one of those. The first one tonight goes back to 1 Kings chapter 3, that idea that parents have a mighty influence which must be used for good and not ill. In 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse number 6, as God has asked Solomon, what shall I give you? He says, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. 
You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. You go forward to 1 Kings chapter 15, listed on the slide there, in verses 25 through 26. And as we begin to have the reign of the kings, and so I apologize somewhat for the sake of time, the idea that that list that we threw up there, they're beginning to be talked about in the back half of the book. We don't have time tonight to focus on all them. But there is this continual theme, and we see it in verses 25 and 26 of of chapter 15. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. And every time you will see this kind of statement. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. When we think about uh, Jeroboam, Jeroboam is continually pointed at as the one who made Israel sin. Can we really blame Jeroboam and put all that on his shoulders? Not really, but yes. He was a part of leading the children of Israel away. He was a part in choosing to put the golden calves in Dan and in Bethel so that they could have their own places of worship outside of what God had told them to do. But we learn through the book of the Kings the fact that when we learn about them, we will reference them back to their father. We will look at the influence of parents and see what kind of effect that has. Now, the one thing that the the book of Kings says in the good sense when you read about the kings of the southern kingdom when they're good is they walk in the ways of their father, David. Was David their father? Well, no, not usually directly, but they would point back to the good that David did and be able to recognize that. You know the passage, with a lot of the times with these practical lessons, we try to look at a New Testament passage for us as well. But you know the passage there in Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And if we skip forward to verse number 4, the children get their way back a little bit. And that God also, through uh, Paul, says, And you fathers, as well, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Parents, dads. Men, women, in 2019, we have to do the same thing. David had to do the same thing. Solomon needed to do the same thing. Parents have a mighty influence. We talk a lot, even as we've done today, and even in the introduction, about the importance of the congregation helping our children. We're thankful for the prayers of of all of our men, Travis included, the prayers for Cody and Santana and others who work with our young people. That's important, but it's not all that they're supposed to do. It's not their responsibility to get our children to heaven, in a sense, as we might say. It falls on the parents, and their parents' influence can be used for good or for ill. And may we choose wisely in that. Number two tonight, when it comes to practical lessons, wisdom from God is greater than wisdom from any other source. Solomon says it there in 1 Kings chapter 3, as he is going to ask for that wisdom from God. Um, I'm thinking with as powerful as Solomon could have been and was in a sense, he could have spent his time learning and looking at many different things, but he was willing to ask of that from God, hopefully understanding the source of that and knowing that God was the one who could provide. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as we think about a New Testament passage for ourselves, uh, the entire chapter, if you will, of 1 Corinthians 2, touches on spiritual wisdom. It touches on the wisdom that is from above uh, and not the wisdom that is from man. 
But even in the beginning of the chapter, as Paul speaks about Jesus and him crucified, he says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you were with us last Sunday morning, don't miss the context here. Because if you go backward to chapter 1, we learn how to become a Paulite. Remember, were you, was Paul baptized or crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is continually having to push this message back to the people. It's not about me. I don't want to know anything except for Christ and him crucified. Whether it's chapter 1 and he's talking about the division that they were facing or even moving forward into 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he is still saying, do not wear my name. Do not make it about me. It is not about anything that man can offer. It is about the wisdom that is from above. I use the example fairly often in lessons and in, in um, class about the idea that this book does give us gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It does tell us a lot of things that or everything that we need to know. We can go spend hundreds of dollars on self-help books from the library or from the bookstore. But if we would turn back to the source of true wisdom, the peace that passeth all understanding, even as we mentioned that this morning, then we understand that God is the source of the wisdom that we need. And then third and finally tonight, and then the lesson will be yours, we cannot allow worldly people to draw us away from God. What a life that Solomon lived. You know, it's interesting as we think about all that we know about David and his 40 years as reigning as king, we come up to 1 Kings chapter 2 and 3 there, and Solomon is going to begin his 40-year reign. And it's only just about, you know, 8, 9, 10 chapters there. But what a life he lived of luxury, of having all these things, of having this wisdom. But what a statement that is made in chapter 11, and we already read verse 4, that his wives, wives turned his heart after other gods, and he was not loyal as his father David was. There's a lot to unpack from that short, simple verse. Even going down to verse number 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. We cannot allow worldly people to draw us away from God. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 33 as we think about our evil company or evil companions that corrupt our good habits or our good morals. But even 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? I'm afraid oftentimes in our life, what we want to do is to see how close we can get to everyone else and to the world. How close can we blend in with the world, but yet stay away from it? That's not the idea of the Old Testament. That's not the idea of the New Testament. What did God say in the Old Testament? He often told them to utterly destroy, to kill everything, every person. And people will hold that up as what a terrible God. But we understand 
God's necessity, as God is holy, his necessity for purity among his people. And yet what we want to do is be like the children of Israel. Well, we'll destroy most everything, but we want to keep just a few things for ourselves. We, we kind of like to be like everyone else. We cannot allow folks to draw us into their worldly ways. Now, we have to be in the world, as we sometimes say, and not of the world. And we have to work and we have to live. <coughs> Excuse me. And that provides us opportunities. That provides us chances to interact and encourage other people. But we must always be on guard because Solomon, like we've talked about in our class this morning, even in the book of Jude, it probably just wasn't kind of an overnight immediate thing. It kind of began very slowly. Jude says that the way we talked about this morning in verse number four, that men have crept in very quietly into the church and are beginning to lead people astray. So we must be on watch. And we see that even in the book of first Kings. Tonight, as we conclude our lesson, we will extend the Lord's invitation. Just because we've talked about the Old Testament for a good bit tonight doesn't mean that we can't consider our life, especially in light of God's New Testament. When we think about the Word of God, it does give us all that pertains to life and godliness. It does show us the way to live. And not only does it show us how to live going forward, but I am constantly amazed to think about how it tells us to look backwards at things and say, what can we learn? What can we do better? What can we avoid? It doesn't tell us how to be saved when it comes to God's simple plan of salvation. And if you're here tonight, you need to become a child of God. We would study with you even more this plan of salvation so that you can know how to become a Christian, how to have your blood or your sins washed away by the blood of Christ so that he can add you to his church. But as we're about to sing the song in just a moment, we are to remain loyal and we are to remain true. That's difficult sometimes, even as we think about politics and even as we think about um, state and government and military, and we look back to the Old Testament and the way that countries were interacting, it's hard sometimes to remain loyal and true. It's easy to jump ship and go over to the other side, and we have an opportunity to do that as Christians. God doesn't uh, com compel us. He doesn't force us to remain a Christian. We have an opportunity to wander away, to not be loyal to him anymore, and maybe tonight you're in that boat. You've been loyal at one time, but you've not remained true and you've turned away. We're thankful for God's second law of pardon, the opportunity to come back to him. That invitation is always open, but we'll be singing to encourage you now, even now as we stand and sing.